it's a little world of, of building and design. It has its its fair share of stars and legends, but. Would you recognise many of them on the bus? Would you know your Renzo piano from a hole in the ground? Well, maybe not. Uh, but there, there is one star in this firmament of such such glorious familiarity uh, that the simple sound of his voice is enough to transport us to a, a rich world of memory and association. Uh, let's let's put that to the test, <clears throat> uh, mystery guest. Hello. Hello. Speak to me. <laughs> well, I'm not sure how much I should say before I reveal all. But, uh, yes, I'll, I'll talk to you about the fact that actually I'm not the only person in my sphere or in my particular kind of region of, of entertainment and information. But um, there are others too. But, yeah, and actually, goodness me, I'm, I just happen to have gone on for the longest <laughs> because I started a little sooner than other people. So well, it's 30 years or something. This is, of course, Kevin MacLeod, uh, a, a fixture in the public imaginary since the premiere of the, the behemoth that is Grand Designs, April 1994. And he's returning to Australia uh, this month with his new stage show. Kevin MacLeod's Home Truths. Uh, he, using the name, Kevin, hello. Hello. Good to speak to you properly. <laughs> can, we, can, we, can we begin by sharing first bike stories? Um, and this for me is is perhaps the most traumatic moment in my young life when I was given the hip bike of the time, the, the dragster, but mine was without gears. Uh, this was an abiding yeah. trauma. And I understand that you too uh, share an early bicycle <laughs> traumatic moment. I do. I had a tricycle as a little boy. Everything was second or third hand in our house. And my dad bought a second hand bike and painted it blue so that it looked more boyish. And it had just, of course, no gears. It was just a bicycle. But it was a girl's bike. It had no horizontal crossbar. And he made one out of a handrail for a kitchen unit in aluminium. It was so obviously stuck on. And um, he, he thought it was a great piece of engineering. And he was an engineer. You know, he was really proud of what he'd done. But I was just a victim of just an enormous amount of opprobrium and hilarity and bullying as a result of riding around on a girl's bike, which which these days, of course, would be, very you know, cool. in, in, a, in an age, well, in an age now of, of LGBTQ and, 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 and of gender fluidity, it would be entirely, you know, correct and right to share all this stuff. But then it wasn't. Traumatic at the time, but an early lesson in, in the significance of the desirable object. You're absolutely right, and a, a, an early lesson also in the righteous need to to recycle and upcycle and remodel ah. and remake. And I think um, it was that something which kind of knocked around with me for a long time. I, yeah, that, 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 but you're right about uh, about the the identity thing. Yeah, what is it? What is it that constitutes good design? I mean. It's such a. I mean, it, it 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 jumps off the jumps out of the tongue. But what does that mean? What is good design? Yes, that's a really good question. I think first of all, that all of us, funnily enough, intuitively have the have the ability to recognise it, as you say, to recognise mm. the quality of something's design, and to recognise the quality of its construction, and that could be a spoon or a, or a city. Um, but I, I sort of think that good design has to sort of aim to be timeless. It can't simply represent uh, a trend or a fashion. And I also believe that it, it should, apart from yearning for timelessness, it should also 
yearn for elegance. It should be a resolution to a problem. And the problem can be really complex, um, such as how you, you know, organize social housing to be to be more equitable. Uh, or it can be a very simple problem of how you get a spoon to a mouse uh, without spilling fluid. And when I say elegantly, I don't mean that it has to look somehow foppish and 18th century. <laughs> I interviewed the prince, I interviewed the Duke of Edinburgh 10 years ago, 12 years ago, hmm. about his design awards that he started in 1959 and they were design awards for elegant design. And he complained that all the journalists talked about, you know, picture frames. And he, he said, no, 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 this is about engineering. And the winner of the, in the first year in 1959 was a fridge so uh, that rather demonstrated his pursuit of what he thought as being elegant, which was having been in the Navy, things which did their jobs really well were, uh, to, according to Vitruvius's definition of architecture and design, you know, um, uh, firm, uh, commodious and delightful. The idea that it should be well made, well built, it should be, it should be easy to use and ergonomic, but it also should bring joy and and. I think those three values are really important and they're sort of timeless. I mean, architects and designers still refer to them. So I think every designer and maker is hoping that the chair they design, the spoon they design will be more comfortable, better built and more delightful and bring more joy over time than anything gone before. And that's that desire to remake, I think, and make and reinterpret and mm. and, and to push for a, an increasingly more perfect solution. Yeah. Of course, it never is perfect. Well, yeah, but but I wonder if if design and, and architecture that goes with it. I wonder if those two are increasingly important disciplines because of the breadth that they bring to problems. And and in, in a world in which we look at problems on on great scale, currently the things that confront us, an, an idea like good design and the things that are embodied in that notion of good design. That it's important to train minds, don't you think, to work in those ways now, to sort of grapple with those great, big, broad, encompassing things. You are absolutely right. Uh, the the it it strikes me that um, what designers do and architects do is is what we all do, uh, which is try and improve our world and improve ourselves and make things better, and improve the quality of our lives. Except they do it faster and they're much better trained, and their their minds are constantly in the in on mode. Um, uh, yes, I also think that, that it's, as you say, a process which increasingly is a term even, which is grown and grown. There were no such thing as software designers 30, 40 years ago. They were hmm. IT nerds or program writers. Now design is a key part of of designing and building the virtual world. And uh, it's interesting to me that it's as, as a process, it's thousands of years old and it's its objectives are about improvement and it involves research and feedback loops and learning and it's a very useful tool in business even. So it seems to me that as a as a discipline, it's got a lot to offer, lots of, of human fields of activity. And by the same token, it, it's also something which is fairly timeless. And, and, and I quoted Vitruvius, he wrote that quote about firmness, commodity, and delight. He wrote that in the first century AD. So it's it's a process <laughs> yes. which has been kind of around for a while and which was kind of figured out quite a long time ago. The, the, I'd add one thing, probably, and it sort of broadens the, the definition of design and designers, and that is I, I would probably add sustainability as a, a, a fourth mm. 
quality, a fourth objective of what design is trying to achieve now, which is it's about managing resources for this generation and future generations to come. Can we go to the telly? Uh, I'm wondering why Grand Designs works as as entertainment. That's a a very good question, and I don't know the answer, (laughs) but I have suspicions. Damn it, it does. I think the (laughs) suspicions... Well, my suspicions are that it's the last it's the last big adventure we all imagine we can go on. Hmm. And I say this because I've met people from all kinds of backgrounds, many of whom could never afford to own a home, let alone build one. And they love the program because it touches a deep part of who we are as a species and what we want to do and you know what we what we dream of. So I think um, if we can get people to watch the program who are who will never never be able to build, but who actually, and also don't feel too much in the way of envy or or lust, as it were, for what they see. Because I mean, that's a, a key thing. I'm not really interested in promoting um, avarice or, or, or acquisitiveness, which is sort of a, yeah. a less kind of noble human ambition. And it, it, I think that, that that for me is what the series kind of does when it works at its best. It It is showing us the better side of humanity, a, a positive celebration of what we can achieve, where we can go, how we can solve problems. But also it touches, as I say, on this kind of very powerful primitive aspect of, of us. You know, ever since we crawled out of the oceans or climbed out of the cave, we've been trying to make our world better, our environment better and safer and and uh, more humane and um, perhaps more generous to, to us all. Not, it's not just about the individual act of making a home. It's also about making a, you know, a contribution to the built environment, to adopting technologies which are, uh, are new and exciting and, and unproven. And, and that there's all of that in, in the series. I, th- I think that's mm. why it succeeds. Is, is there a consistent theme in, in the things that people want from the spaces in which they live? I mean, not the detail of it, but is there some sort of a emotional essence Yes, it's not always apparent, and I think it depends upon the depth of reflection and the, the personalities of those involved. Some people just want a glorious view, and they just want to oval at the the sky or the, mm. the, the, the landscape, if they're lucky enough to have that view. And and others are after more, perhaps, personal experiences. And I, I'm, I, I'm going to turn to something that's happened in my life recently, which is that I, I've recently been building a bit, and um, for 20 years... I, Actually, ever since I met a couple who were building, who said actually they they they, were, they did meditation together and they meditated on the things that they'd loved and that had made them happy in their lives, and I ended up with a list of about three things on my list. It took me twenty years to get there. One of which is a little stoop that I can sit under when it rains and still enjoy the garden with a cup of tea, and and the other is a shower outdoors that where I can shower all year round and and these are these are tiny things really they're not they're not what you'd call architectural moments but they are highly personal and I think that the most interesting homes are always those that are autobiographical to those people I wouldn't necessarily choose what they've chosen but the choices the pursuits the desires whether it's you know tall ceilings or it's a, a view out or it is the outdoor shower or it is the view of a sunset or whatever it is that triggers a happy memory in people, they're the best things to try and put into buildings, you know, because they, the buildings themselves are, are repositories of ideas and repositories of energy. So so best to make that energy and those ideas as, 
as positive in the first place as possible. And yet I, I wonder sometimes why why we attempt to alter those those physical spaces that we inhabit rather rather than work on the inner life that fills them. It's it's. It, it's an act of the wildest optimism to think that if I change this room, it will make everything better. Yes. On the other hand, Winston Churchill said, we shape our buildings and then they shape us. Yes. And so there is a reciprocal arrangement here. And uh, you're right, however, in as much as the it only works when you look at the bones and look at how you live in terms of the physical activities and interactions day to day because architecture fundamentally is a a very grounded and very pragmatic activity it it deals with where you walk to how often you switch the television on and off do you cook uh, what's your attitude about laundry do you just leave it to pile up or do you just do it every day do you clear up your dishes after a meal or do you just leave them in the kitchen till the next morning um, all of these very mundane questions that mm. architects mm. ask of their clients actually lead to solutions which are very tailored. And you end up with a building which seems easy. And not only easy to use and easy to look good and to remain tidy and to, to keep you calm and happy, but that is easy in terms of the, the positive effects that it then produces in, you know, in going forward. So many people who uh, work hard with their architects on these solving these very pragmatic questions, not about choice of cushions or colour of wallpaper, but many of them end up um, never wanting to leave the home because the home is so tailored to <laughs> their personalities and their their quirks and whims. There, there, there was a favourite Grand Designs moment just recently, and I, I, I couldn't tell you what series it was from because it's one of those programmes that you can watch, you know, in any or no particular order, but there was this sumptuous place that, that intense and extraordinary effort had gone into and you asked, where do you put the bins? Um, and I thought, yes. yes. <laughs> Quite so. <laughs> well, there, there are, of course, those individuals who never quite get there in terms of that personal journey towards pragmatic solutions and who are just really focused on, mm, you know, wanting to live in a showroom you know, or feel as though they're, they're living this, occupying a dream, which I find always a little suspicious mm. uh, because surely you could have just moved into a shop window if you wanted to do that. And uh, and certainly for me, the, the homes that are the most magical are those which are autobiographical, that are, uh, are populated with books and records and stuff and bits of inherited furniture and new, odd new thing. And, it, it you know, that's a marvellous thing when you, you see people not just throw all their possessions away and buy a sofa from a showroom, but yeah, but, um, yeah. but those actually who bring their lives with them to an extent, sometimes edited down, yes, that's always a good thing that we should be doing, not having too much stuff in our lives. And, but, and yet that, that's, a, that's a little bit counter to the sort of the, the prevailing orthodoxy, which is towards, you know, what, what we in this program constantly refer to as grazification of the, the reduction of everything to some sort of ubiquitous nothingness. That seems to be right, the, yeah. the modern mode. Yeah. It, yes, combined with, I'm, I'm going to reduce everything I own to, to the absolute minimal while ensuring that my house is expanded to the largest possible size. <laughs> there's, a, <laughs> there's a contradiction there. And um, I, I visited a house two days ago, which won the uh, Robin Boyd Award for architecture hmm. last year in, in Sydney. It's a... I think CBJ are the architects, and it's a it's the architect's own home, and um, it's a glorious tiny thing on a, a three meter by uh, ten meter footprint, 
And it's an infill project, so it's a very tight building, three stories high, but with seven levels and full of delight and whim and fun and enough to keep you occupied and enjoyed for a lifetime. And um, it just struck me. And the owner said to me, well, actually, you know, we had to get rid of most of our stuff. Uh, so we <laughs> gave it away. And we said, but they've reduced ownership in order to fit their contents into a small building. Hmm. And by the same token, they built a small building. But the the riches within it are greater. And I think there is, uh, talking to Anthony Burke, a professor at um, uh, Sydney Technology University, and he, he's a professor there. He's presenting the new series of Grand Designs in indeed. Australia yes. for ABC. And he said, um, he said, yeah, he said, I think we're on the verge of a really new and interesting time in, in buildings when architecture is no longer about the big glass wall and the white emulsion and the co polished concrete. And it's much more about... Uh, humane buildings that are actually full of joy and fun and wit and which 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 communicate to the street and invite people and uh, have a, a geniality and a, a depth about them and and I think he's right because that I've, I've noticed that elsewhere and certainly in my country and it's a it's a beautiful thing to witness because you 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 end up with buildings that are aren't simply mm, as you say statements about reduction they're more about statements of of of, of joy. Um, yeah, not reduction. In in closing, can we, can we talk layering? Yeah, <laughs> you, you you dress so impeccably for a building site. <laughs> oh, I thought you were about to talk about. I thought when you were going to ask me some interior design question about curtains. But, no. Um, yeah. Well, well, well I, I, I my problem is I have to I go away for three or four days at a time, and I have to take all the clothes I need for you know the odd meeting. So, so best wear them all at once. Is that the is that the clue? Yeah, I try and wear. Well, yes, I do wear quite a lot. I'm I'm I'm, I'm in Sydney at the moment, and I'm just wearing a t-shirt. But I I and in summer that's my you know uh, go-to. But the problem about the, the job, if you can really call it that, it, it it just really involves standing around all day, not doing anything, waiting. And if you do that on a cold day at kind of six degrees in a damp climate, you you lose all your body heat. So I'm, and I get a bit of uh, Raynard, you know, um, I lose, okay, lose yes. the sensitivity in my fingers yes. and toes. So I really have to look after my circulation. So I wear, you'll laugh, but in winter I wear um, I wear long uh, two pairs of long johns, both of merino wool, and I then wear um, like ballerina um, leggings underneath to keep the blood warm in my lower legs. And two pairs of socks, and uh, or three sometimes, and then um, the same in my hands. You know, so I'm, I make no apology. So one man wrote to me from Canada <laughs> saying that you're ridiculous. Um, I work outdoors, and I just wear a t-shirt and a coat. And um, he's right, I am ridiculous. But I'm, I, I also when if I'm working at home in a field, um, I, you know, uh, looking after some landscape or something. I, I, I um, or you know, getting you know, sorting a tree out. I'll, I'll, I'll wear a t-shirt and a coat. It's, it's just, uh, it's just that the job involves doing almost nothing. The standing around. I, I had not imagined, and I, and I will now have this thought in perpetuity: the, the triple long johns and ballerina tights. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah. that image is now firmly etched. <laughs> Never to be revealed. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin, thank you so very much. A, a, a treat to talk. It's very good to talk to you. Thank you. It's so, so thoughtful. And uh, thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed that conversation. Kevin McLeod, <laughs> you'll know him, of course, from Grand Designs. And, and if you are, if you are a, a fan of the stage, you can catch him live uh, around the country through this month of February. Uh, we'll put a link on the Blueprint page at the Radio National website. And this is Blueprint, ABC RN.
Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.